Hello everyone, this is Sonali Mangal and welcome to another episode of Learn, Educate, Discover. On this podcast, we invite people from different professions on each of our episodes and we ask them a range of questions to try and understand what their job is all about. The goal of this podcast is to try and educate our listeners about as many different kind of jobs as we can so that someone listening to the show can decide does a certain job sound interesting to them and if yes, how do they go about exploring it further. Now, today's episode is a little different and that is because instead of an interview, I'll be sharing the audio of a speech that I really like. And this is a speech that Professor Deepak Malhotra gave to the graduating MBA students at Harvard in 2012. Professor Malhotra teaches negotiations at Harvard and he's also the author of books such as I Moved Your Cheese and Negotiation Genius. The reason I like this speech so much is because it presents a very, very different point of view from what we are used to listening for the most part. The name of the speech is Tragedy and Genius. And one of the many things that Professor Malhotra talks about is the importance of quitting. What he talks about is that the reason he was able to find a job that he really, truly enjoys is because he wasn't afraid of quitting the things that he didn't enjoy. In fact, he quit many, many different jobs. And in fact, he tried many different academic programs before he finally landed in something that he enjoys, which is the negotiations role that he now has at HBS. And so this is very interesting because the conventional wisdom is that you, let's say you take up a job, then you shouldn't switch or you shouldn't quit before you've spent a considerable amount of time in that job. And people are afraid that if they, that if someone sees a lot of different hops in their resume, then that'll be taken as a sign of someone who isn't very reliable. And that might actually be the truth. But this is a very interesting talk because it presents a very different way of thinking. And so even if you don't agree with him, I think this is still a talk that is worth listening to because it's just such a different point of view and it can be very interesting and maybe even helpful in your own thought process. So without further ado, let's listen to Professor Malhotra and I hope you enjoy the talk. Deepak Malhotra. Deepak Malhotra is a professor in the Negotiations, Organizations, and Markets Unit at the Harvard Business School. He teaches negotiations in the MBA program and in a wide variety of executive programs. His teaching is widely praised as evidenced by winning an HBS faculty award from the MBA class of 2011. Professor Malhotra has published several books. His most recent, I Moved Your Cheese, has been translated into 15 languages and is currently a Wall Street Journal bestseller. Deepak's research focuses on negotiation strategy, trust development, competitive escalation, and international and ethnic dispute resolution. He will talk about none of these today. (laughs) Follow him on Twitter at Prof Malhotra. And without further ado, please join me and welcome him to the stage. Good afternoon. How are we doing? It is my pleasure to be here with all of you today. It's not only my pleasure, it's also my honor uh, to be here. One of the easiest questions I've been asked all year is when the Student Association reached out and and asked whether I would join all of you this afternoon for this talk. That was an easy yes. 
one of the most important relationships that I have in my life is my relationship with my students. And although most of you were not a student in my classroom, uh, I wouldn't pass up on the opportunity to engage with you at least once uh, before you graduate. <clears throat> Which reminds me, uh, let me be among the first, perhaps, to congratulate you on graduation, which is only a couple weeks ago. Uh, it's, it's pretty close. Uh, I don't think I'm being premature in congratulating you. I think most of you are going to make it. Uh, certainly all of you seem to think so, because you're not preparing for exams right now. You're sitting here. Uh, we'll see how that works out. Uh, but it, it's great to be here with all of you. And uh, I'm going to leave some time at the end for questions. Uh, I'm very cognizant of the fact that most meaningful conversations tend to be dialogues, not monologues. Uh, this, of course, will be mostly a monologue. Hopefully, we'll have some time at the end to do some Q&A. And if not, and if you want to have a dialogue afterwards, uh, feel free to reach out to me either later today, if I'm uh, still going to be around for a little while, or sometime in the future. <clears throat> As mentioned in the very nice introduction, what I'm going to be talking about is not really related to what most of you uh, know me for, which is negotiation and dealing with conflict, uh, and perhaps my work in my more recent book. What I'm going to be talking about today is something quite different, and I want to kick off the conversation with an observation. And the observation is the following. There are a lot of people in this world that have it pretty tough. There are people in this world who have very, very big problems. And by my estimation, almost none of those people are in this room today. In fact, I think we'd all agree that it's quite the opposite. The people in this room today represent you know, the top one-hundredth of one percent, maybe the top one-thousandth of one percent of the people on this planet when it comes to future wealth potential, future health potential, freedom, liberty, social networks, the opportunities that you have, just about by any of these really nice measures, this is about as good as it gets. And here's the observation. What we know is that many of you will be unhappy in the years that follow. And that's a big problem. Imagine for a moment that one of these people who has almost nothing in the world, who has really big problems, they've lived through war or famine, their children go to sleep every night hungry or scared or both. One of these people runs into you on the street in a couple of years and asks you, are you fantastically happy? Are you like really happy? And your answer is no, not really. And then the person asks you, why not? What explanation would you give to this person? How would you make it make sense to this person? That would be a difficult conversation. And one of the things I want to talk about today is this. <clears throat> Over the two years that you've been here, or almost two years you've been here, you've heard a lot of conversation about what it is that we want from you. We want you to be great managers. We want you to be great leaders. We want you to be ethical. We want you to solve the big problems in the world. Let's set all of that aside <coughs> for this afternoon, at least for this hour. Let's set that aside and just focus on one thing. Here's what I want from all of you. What I would like all of you to be is happy. All right? Let's set what should be a low bar 
Let's just make sure that everybody leaving this place is happy. Given all the opportunities you have ahead of you, if people in this room can't be happy, then that's, <clears throat> that's a shame. It's also a slap in the face of the people out there who would give anything to have a thousandth of the opportunity you have for themselves or for their kids. Because if we can't do that, if we can't walk away from here and a few years from now be very, very happy with the choices we've made and the life we're living, then that's a problem. And that's what I would call a tragedy. And I use that word in a literal sense. Now, you're like, what did I walk into here? This is getting pretty dark, all right? It's, it's, it's going to get better. Don't worry. Uh, <clears throat> when I use the word tragedy, I, I mean that in the literal sense. We've had tragedy with us in literature for many years. Thousands of years, people have been talking about tragedies in the literature. And one definition, and you can have lots of different definitions for what makes for a tragedy, but one definition of a tragedy is the following. A story in which the protagonist suffers extreme sorrow as a consequence of a grave error or a personal failing that combines with external forces and circumstances. Or to put it more simply, the measure of tragedy is the following. It's the distance between how happy you could or would or should have been and how happy you actually are. The greater that distance, the greater that disparity, that's the measure of tragedy in this story. Here's what you could have been. Here's what you should have been. Here's what you had the opportunity to be. If there was never that opportunity, it's not a tragedy. It's just a pathetic situation. It's just a bad situation. <clears throat> it's a tragedy when we can imagine this person, this hero, this protagonist could have been this happy, but here's where they ended up. And what leads to that disparity, what leads to that difference in stories and in people's lives is usually a combination of two things, circumstance and choices. Difficult circumstances and poor choices. And what's interesting here is that for the group of us in this room, we don't have the ability to blame circumstances too much. For us, most of it's going to be about the choices. So that's what tragedy is. So what would be the opposite of tragedy? What would happen if we take that delta between what could have been and what is? How happy we could have been and how happy we are? What if we could eliminate that difference? What if that delta was zero? What kind of story would that be? And I'm going to suggest to you that a word that captures that story is genius. Now, genius has come to mean something particular in society. <clears throat> we think of genius as someone who's really good at something, someone who's the best at a certain thing. Einstein, genius. Mozart, genius. Michael Jordan, genius. All right? But the word genius actually comes from a slightly different place. If you go back to the roots of where genius really comes from, it used to mean something a little bit different. It didn't refer to being exceptional at something. It referred to the essence of something, what you might call the essence of a person or a thing, the ness of something. And by this definition, it makes less sense to ask, is this person a genius? And much more sense to ask, what is this person's genius? What is their genius? And what I'll suggest to you is responsible for eliminating the delta between how happy you could be and how happy you are is the extent to which you understand and embrace 
your genius, what makes you you, what is your essence, and create a life and make the kind of choices that allows you to exhibit that genius every day. So that who you are and what you're doing are not two different things. You're not at work with a game face on, going through the motions, and then when you come home or on the weekends, you get to be you. That is not exhibiting genius in your life. And so what I want to talk about fundamentally are the choices we make that create one story or another. A story that you look back 50 or 60 years from now and ask yourself, was that a tragedy or was that pure genius? So what I want to talk about are some of the choices and perhaps some of the habits you may want to consider cultivating to make sure that the story ends up maybe where you want it to end up. So that everybody in here can look back a couple of years from now and say, am I happy? Fantastically so. Yes, I was lucky to have these circumstances, but then I made the right choices. So that's where this is going to go. And I'll start with an idea that we don't talk much about at the Harvard Business School. In fact, we don't talk much about it in business schools generally. We don't even talk about it much in society as being a particularly good thing. But here is my most immediately actionable advice for you. Quit. To be more specific, quit early and quit often. Be the best quitter you know. And just to make sure I'm being clear about what I do and don't mean about this, let me use the word in a sentence. Here's what I mean. If you don't mind, take a moment and close your eyes. You don't have to, but play along if you don't mind. And if you are lucky enough to have a job or something lined up for the summer or the fall, imagine that job for a moment. What you're going to be doing after you graduate. Just imagine that for a moment. And ask yourself, am I really excited about this? Is this what I always wanted to be doing at this stage in my life? Is this what I dreamed of doing? Is this what I really, really, really want to do? <clears throat> and if the answer is no, then I suggest you quit. And you quit now. And save yourself some time. Quit early, quit often. As I think about my own career, as I think about the stuff that I get to do now, and I love my job. I love every aspect of it. I didn't get to have a job that I love. Now, I'm not saying anybody else would love it. I love it. But I wouldn't have found this job uh, by making good decisions. I would go as far as to say that I am worse than the average person, and probably considerably worse than the people in this room, at making good career decisions. I tend to make the wrong decision many times. The thing that I happen to be good at, the thing that I was luckily quite good at from an early age, was being a good quitter. I would identify what I don't like and not waste time justifying to myself that it's okay, I should still do it. And I would just quit. When I went into college, I was an undergrad for three years. I formally changed majors five times. All right? And I actually changed schools once in the middle as well. <laughs> Computer science, no. Psychology, no. Secondary education, majoring in English and math, no. Criminal justice, no. Economics, yes. And then I graduated. <clears throat> and I got a job at a very nice consulting firm. 
which I won't name, because three months later, I hated it. And I noticed a lot of people near me hated it as well. Some people loved it. It was perfect for them. That's exactly what they should have been doing. But I wasn't one of those people, so I quit again. I thought, well, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? No idea. Maybe I'll be a high school teacher. I always thought I'll be a high school teacher. Okay, I'll start substitute teaching at my old high school. So I became a sub. And while I was doing that, I started practicing martial arts. I thought maybe I'll open a martial arts school at some point in my life. And I started thinking about business. Maybe I want to start a business in the world of education, sort of a tutoring business. So I incorporated that and started thinking about how I'm going to get some clients. And at the same time, I was thinking about getting a PhD and being a game theorist. So I applied and got into a few schools to study managerial economics and game theory. And then I quit most of those things, and I went to Northwestern University to become a game theorist. It was fantastic for about four months. And I realized, you know, the, the modeling is cool, the math is great, the economics is very fun, but this is not who I am. And so I quit again. And by now, I was starting to worry myself. Like, maybe I'm one of those people who will never find something. Until I did. And I switched departments, and I ended up studying negotiation and decision-making, and then I took some time off to study ethnic conflict, and it really became clear that this is exactly what I should be doing with my life. And I couldn't have made that decision when I graduated from college. I didn't even know this job existed. I can look back and tell a nice story about how all the things I was interested in, teaching, consulting, research, analysis, having no boss, etc., etc., all of a sudden all come together in this job. But it didn't happen by charting a path. It did happen by quitting, quitting often and quitting early. So by the time I got hired at this great school, I was 26 years old and a whole bunch of quitting under my belt. Quit early, quit often. Two last things I'll say about quitting before we move on to something else. I could talk about quitting all day. Uh, <laughs> first, I'm not saying quit something because it's hard. I'm telling you to quit something because it sucks. It's just not for you. It may be for everybody sitting near you, but it's not for you. Quit it. Don't spend years justifying why you got to do it. If you have the opportunity, quit. The second thing I'll say, quitting is not for the weak. Quitting takes strength. Quitting often takes more strength than perseverance. Cultivate the strength to quit and make it a habit. It allows you to say no to a lot of things and yes to the few things that maybe you didn't even know were perfect for you. Now, of course, after you do all this quitting, you've got to do something with your life. You can't really just keep quitting. So what are you going to do? What job should you take? What career path should you follow? Obviously, it's going to be different for the 900 or so MBAs that we have graduating this year. Everybody's different. Everybody's going to do something very different. You could decide to do something in the arts, something in engineering, starting a business, working in management. You could do a million things. But here's one thing. Here's one feature that should be a part of everybody's job and everybody's career track, and everybody's future. It's the one feature that ties all of you together as MBA students. It's what the MBA student's mission is in life. You know, it's, it's hard sometimes to talk about the mission of an MBA student, because we're going to have a debate about what that really is. It's easy in other fields. You go to the med school, ask people, what's your mission? What's your purpose? 
in some language or another, they'll tell you our purpose is to create health, to create a healthier society. Got it. Go to the law school. What's your purpose? Create justice. Go to the ed school. What's your purpose? Create education. Create a more educated or learned society. Business school. What's your purpose? What are you all supposed to do? What have you been prepared for, trained for, educated to do? And I would suggest that one answer to that question is you are trained to create value. You have the ability, you have the training, you have the practice of being among the best in this world at finding ways to create value where it needs to be or could be created. You can see a problem and try to figure out how we would best fix it. You can look at a system that's broken and think about how to improve it. You can think about a need or a demand that's unfulfilled. You can think about how to fulfill it. How do we bring together the resources, bring together the people, create the system, create the processes, create the structures, the channels that we need to solve problems that create value? Everyone in here should be a value creator. Whatever it is that you want to do, in whatever field it may be, create value. Make sure that what you're doing creates value. And people, of course, think of creating value in different ways. But fundamentally, it comes down to two buckets. There's two kinds of people. There are those who figure out how to create value first, and then worry about how much money they're going to make later. The assumption is if I create a lot of value, I'm going to have the opportunity to monetize some of that value, and I'm going to get paid. But we're going to find a way to create value in whatever area we want. Business, non-business, doesn't matter. We're going to create value, and then we're going to get paid. These are the people we call MBAs. And then there are those who figure out how to make money, but don't really create value for anyone. They find a way to position themselves in a certain way, create certain structures that make sure they get paid, even though they're not really creating value for anyone. We call these people thieves. Don't be a thief. The value you create in society should be the upper bound of how much money you make. Now, how much you make up to that is up for negotiation. It's up for discussion. It's up for argument. It's up to principles of fairness, etc. But the value you create in society should serve as an upper bound of how much you take home. If you're taking home more than the value you're creating in society, you're falling into bucket number two. Find a way to create value. Find a way to create value in an area, in a passion, in an aspect of the world that makes sense to you. Of course, you know, we've been talking about careers and jobs. It's not really the only place that's going to have an impact on your happiness. In fact, my guess is, for most of you, most of the time, your day-to-day -day happiness is going to be much more a function of your relationship with people than it is going to be about the job you have. So it'll be, it'll be close. But those relationships are going to matter. And what's going to matter even more is how you handle those relationships when those relationships aren't going so well. How you manage conflict in your lives. Now, I've been studying conflict for about 15 years. I'm not saying that's a lot, but it's 15 years. And one of the things that I have come to terms with and understood, I think, at a pretty deep level is the following. It turns out you don't need two people 
one of whom's a bad person in order to have conflict. You just need two people. We see good, smart, well-intentioned people fighting with each other all the time. You don't need one person to have ill intent or to be an idiot to have a conflict. Good people are fighting with good people. Smart people are fighting with smart people all the time. And what helps us reconcile those conflicts, what allows us to have better relationships at all levels, at the levels of society, internationally, with each other in the house, is this third point, which is about empathy. If you can, cultivate greater empathy in your lives. A phrase I like to use is, learn to see the world through gentler eyes. Be less judgmental of other people. Personally, I don't care if you are a fan of Sean Hannity or Keith Oberman. I don't care if you know, the ideas of the Tea Party resonate with you or the ideas of Occupy Wall Street. I don't care if it's about the Koch brothers or about George Soros. I really don't care what you believe. But what does matter is how much you are willing to understand people who are on the other side. How much you're willing to say, this person passionately, fundamentally, adamantly disagrees with me on some major issues. And it doesn't have to mean that they're crazy or evil or out to get me. That they see the world in a fundamentally different place. It's, it's fantastic. There's a million people who agree with you. That's great. But there's also a million people who don't agree with you. And the question is, how do you make sense of those people? What do you do when you run into one of those people? Now, I think all of us have a decent amount of empathy. I think most of us are the kinds of people that try to take the other person's perspective most of the time. It's just that we tend to forget it when it matters most. And it matters most in two cases. One is when we're in our really close relationships. The sad fact of the matter is that we typically behave worse with the people that we care about most. You get into an argument, you get into a fight, you start out wanting to make a good point, share your perspective, try and understand where they're coming from, but things start spiraling out of control. And you walk away not having any patience for, not having any desire for, really understanding why it is that they're so angry at you, why it is that they see the world so differently than you do, why they think what you did was maybe not the right thing to do. And the second place we tend to not have sufficient empathy is when we're dealing with people that we just fundamentally don't like at all. But what you got to remember is that empathy matters most when you're dealing with people who seem to deserve it least. I'll give you an example. Uh, it's not about empathy, but it's about something very related to it. Uh, my martial arts instructor once told me the following story. When he was a bit younger, uh, he was an instructor, but he also worked on the side at this, uh, at this hospital, which had a lot of patients with psychological disorders. And one of his aspects of his job, uh, as was the case with everybody who worked there, was that when one of these patients got out of control, maybe even got violent, one of the aspects of the job was to try and bring these people under control, restrain them, make sure they don't hurt themselves or, or hurt you, get the situation under control. 
And so he used to work here, and, and, and whenever one of those situations would erupt, it would be like, you know, all hands on deck. Everybody, let's try to fix this problem. Of course, sometimes you'd be the only one there. And there was no backup. There was nobody else there. So that was the context. So anyway, the, the instructor is one day sitting with uh, his boss in the lunchroom. And the boss says to him, he says, let me ask you something. You know when you're one of, one of these patients and they get really physical, they get violent, they start attacking you, and nobody else is really there? Do you ever use your kung fu on these people? The guy looks at him and he says, all the time. What are you talking about? That's crazy. You can't do that. That's not even legal. That's going to that's get you in trouble. And the instructor says, you know, it's, it's when these people are losing their cool, and they're getting violent, and they're taking it out on me. Those are the moments when it's most important for me to keep my cool, for me to keep my balance, for me to try and understand why they're doing what they're doing, and why they're lashing out at me, and what they're going to do next. And it's my kung fu that allows me to do that, to keep my cool, to keep my composure. That's me using my kung fu every day. If I didn't have that, I might actually throw a punch at someone. I might really lose it. This is where it matters most. And the same thing is true in our relationships. There are people who are going to annoy you, who are going to frustrate you, who are going to think differently from you in ways that you just can't even imagine somebody could think. The question is, what do you do with it? Are you going to be one of those people we have too much of, the sort of one-liner, rote-memorizing, party-line ideologues who will go around saying, you know, there are simple, easy answers to what people say are complex problems, and the simple, easy answer is this, and everybody who disagrees is wrong or evil or out to get you or a communist or a Hitler? Or are you going to be someone who says, listen, the reason we have a long-standing, seemingly intractable debate on this issue is because smart, well-intentioned people who come from different backgrounds, from different perspectives, sometimes disagree. You got to have that empathy. You got to have the ability to look at the world through gentler eyes. It can make all the difference in every one of the relationships we have. Of course, before we can have empathy, we need to have something else, which gets us to humility. Now, let's clear the air a little bit. Some of you walked into school not rating very high on the humility scale, which is cool. Some of us walked into school with the exact same problem. Uh, but then you walked into the class. And what did we do? We made matters worse. So here's the clearing of the air. This has to be said. Many of the answers you gave in class were wrong. <laughs> they were dead wrong. All right? Yeah, I said it. And we didn't tell you that. We certainly didn't tell you that often enough. I'm not talking about the category of things that, well, there's no right or wrong answer. I'm talking about there's right and wrong, and you're wrong. <laughs> Instead, we sort of nod along. Sort of, anybody else? Maybe we go to the board, write your answer in a smaller font than the rest of it. <laughs> All sorts of stuff happening, hoping. And, you know, we didn't do you any favors. And that's on us. 
But the fact of the matter is, when you leave and you get out there, you need to remember, we have not equipped you to solve the big problems you're going to face. We have equipped you to have a fighting chance when you face those problems. And the extent to which you can solve those problems, not the easy stuff that you could have solved before you got here, the big stuff that you think you want to solve and we think you want to solve. The extent to which you're going to be able to solve those is, yes, in part going to be based on your skills, your confidence level, etc., but also in no small part on your ability to be humble, to accept what you know and you don't know, to understand that there are problems that have been going on for a long time, there are problems that nobody else has solved for a reason. Because a hundred people coming up to that problem trying to solve it themselves may not solve it. That you got to bring other people in. That you got to think differently. That you don't have all the answers. It makes a huge difference. Humility and confidence are not enemies. They are best friends. If you have one or the other, you're in a lot of trouble. People with lots of humility and no confidence, they're not doing too much. They're not taking very many actions. They're not being bold. But the people that have all the confidence in the world and no humility, I see one of those people, I see someone who's about to go down in flames. And they're probably going to take other people with them. You've got to have both. Confidence with humility. Yes, I can do it. Yes, it can be done. And what are the limits of what I can do alone? Or what are the limits of what I bring to the table? What are the limits of everything that we have tried so far? Are we open to that? Now, the good news is this. The good news is, uh, whether our parents teach us sufficient humility, whether our teachers teach us sufficient humility, eh, maybe, maybe not. But relatively soon, in all of your lives, someone's going to show up who's going to teach you humility fast. And that someone is going to be your kid. Your children will teach you humility faster than you could have imagined. In my case, when my three-year-old son, this is a year and a half ago, came up to me and said, Daddy, I really want something. I really want to do something. What is it? Can you teach me how to fly? How to fly? How do you answer that? Say, what is this person thinking? More, important, more importantly, what have I been representing myself as? Yeah, step back here. All right, this is going to be a longer conversation. All right? And it also comes in a different way with your kids. You look at these kids, they're, they're small, and you, and you realize how much they already know. And you ask yourself, you know, I'm 30, 35 years older than this person. I don't know if I know much more. I'll give you an example. I'm talking to, uh, so as I was preparing for this talk, I decided to ask my children what I should talk about. Now, my kids are very young. Uh, my son is four and a half years old. My daughter is two and a half years old, and then I have a two and a half month old. I didn't ask her. Uh, <laughs> but I went to the other two. And I tried to explain to my daughter, I said, you know, she's two and a half years old. I said, you know, daddy's going to be giving me a talk. He's going to be talking to students. He's going to be talking to kids. You know, what would you say? What's important? So it basically came down to, what would you tell someone is very important? What should you always remember? And she says, no hitting. Said, That's pretty good. <laughs> All right? No hitting. So I say, okay, uh, anything else? She says, no kicking. I'm like, okay. Anything else? No punching. Like, All right. How about something very different? Anything different from that? 
And she thinks about it for a while and she says, no hitting someone on the head with a bat. <laughs> I, I think we're tapped out here. Uh, let's go to my son. So the following day, I set aside some time to sit down with my son. And I asked my son, I say, and he, he got it a little bit more. Daddy's going to give a talk. I'd given a talk at his school once for, his, for the kids in his class. He's, he's four and a half in preschool. So he, he kind of got it. And I said, okay, what's important? And he says, be a good listener. Very good. All right. What else? Don't do bad things. Agreed. Anything else? Don't cry for small things. Or don't cry because of small reasons. This is fantastic. So I push my luck a little bit more. Anything else? Don't call 911 to talk to a fireman if there's no fire. <laughs> now, he's never done that. I don't even know where he got that. But that's in top four things that people should know. All right? And you think about it, you step away, and you're like, these kids sort of know. You know, what have we been doing for the last 30 years? What have I done since I knew that? You'd have been better off just having them up here. All right? They're much cuter. They're uh, at least as insightful. But it's true. You know, you think about what it is that you know and you don't know, and you think about your kids, and it can make a big difference. And I, I assume most of you don't have kids right now. I know most of you don't have kids right now. But it's, it's an amazing experience, and you've got to have the humility even when you talk with your kids because there's a lot that they can teach you. And that's where I'm going to take the last point in all of this. This is a school, and so the last point should be about education, and it should be about learning. And so the last thing I'm going to say to you on this is you've got to get your learn on. Here's what I mean. The thing that we, as people, seem to be most inefficient at is learning. The human body is an amazingly efficient machine. When we go to work, we're actually pretty efficient if we put our minds to it. The one thing where we fail miserably on the efficiency scale is in learning. We miss, on a daily basis, 99% of the learning opportunities that come our way. And the reason is partly we don't have our student hat on, but also partly because we're very picky about what we learn and who we learn from. We walk into a situation with preconceived notions about what it is that I should learn. And what I want to suggest to you is you're going to learn a lot more if you're not so picky about who you learn from and what you learn. If you're open to the idea of learning from every experience that you're having. Again, I'll give you a personal example. When I was practicing martial arts, one of the things that would happen when you would go into the school, when you'd go to the dojo, is occasionally it would be sparring day. And you would be paired up with someone, and you had to you know, put on some gear, but not too much, and then you would spar. And it would be physical, and there would be physical contact, but you were taught to you know, pull your punches a little bit. Especially if you're going to attack someone in the face. You're not going to go all out. You're going to pull your punches. You can go a little bit harder on the body, etc., but pull your punches in any case, pull your kicks, etc. Every so often... More often than randomly, it seemed, I would get paired with this one particular guy. He was bigger than me. He was stronger than me. He was higher ranked than me. He was better in every way. That was fine. What wasn't fine was he didn't seem to understand what it meant to pull a punch. So every time he came at me, I'd get hit hard. I mean, I'd block some things, but I was getting hit hard. And it 
hurt and it would throw me off and it was really annoying. And every so often the instructor would have to remind him, listen, you gotta, you know, this is practice. We're trying to improve. We can't just go full on. Otherwise people aren't going to learn. But he wouldn't listen. Or he would listen, he just didn't care. Or he had a different philosophy about what it meant to practice or to spar. I don't know. But his behavior wouldn't change and it got really frustrating. I started dreading walking in here and being paired up with that guy. Because the entire hour would be a waste. I'd just spend the whole time making sure I don't get my ass kicked. All right? Sitting there going, I'm not learning a thing. Until, and you know where this is going, I realize that I've got it all wrong. I am not going to learn the things I came here to learn. But I can learn a lot more. I don't usually get the opportunity to learn how to take a punch to the face. I don't usually get the opportunity to try to keep my composure when I'm under physical attack. Or to remember what I'm supposed to do when the adrenaline is getting out of control. This is a unique opportunity. I knew at the end of the day I'm not going to end up in the hospital. You know, let's put it in perspective. Now, do I want to have the mindset of going in there and getting excited about this opportunity? Or do I want to go in there and dread it and learn nothing? It was an opportunity to learn. It just wasn't in the form that I had expected. You got to remember, you can learn at least as much from a bad teacher as from a good teacher. Not the same thing, but you can learn at least as much from a bad teacher as a good teacher if you're open to the idea of learning. And like quitting, like empathy, like humility, like the idea of making sure you're creating value, this idea of not being a picky learner, this is simple stuff. But simple doesn't make it easy. Nothing I'm saying here is very complex. All right? It's simple, not complex. But that doesn't mean it's easy. If it was easy, we'd all be doing it all the time, to the extent that we thought it made sense in our lives. But these are habits we can cultivate. We can cultivate the habit of looking carefully at a situation and deciding whether or not to quit, and how soon we can do it. Are we really creating value on the path that we have decided to move? Are we cultivating sufficient empathy? Are we stepping back and trying to understand the perspective of the people we're dealing with? Do we have sufficient humility in our interactions with people and our interactions with problems? Are we keeping an open mind and making sure that we learn? You're no longer going to be, quote, students. But you should remain students. It's going to be the most helpful thing you can do as you go forward and try to figure out what you want to do with the rest of your life. So I'm going to close with just one last thing that is different from everything I've said so far. Uh, it's not related to tragedy or to genius or which choices you're going to make or any of the five things I talked about up to here, but it is worth saying. Your teachers care a lot about you. Your teachers want you to be successful. We want you to be happy. We want you to do great things. But there's something else we want as well. We like when you stay in touch. Stay in touch with your teachers. They invest a lot in you. The teachers that are here, but the teachers that are not here. And the teachers that aren't even at the business school. Stay in touch with your teachers. Reach out to them once in a while. Let them know how you're doing. Not just with the business school. You know, think back to your elementary school, middle school, high school, your parents. Call your parents tonight for crying out loud. All right? Reach out to people. These are the people that care. These are the people that have done a lot to get you where you are. And it's a really, really nice thing. Not out of gratitude, 
but just out of remaining part of that relationship. The idea of, of touching base with folks. Stay in touch with your teachers of any form. Even stay in touch with the teachers that you didn't think were your teachers because you hated them. If somebody taught you something, they're your teacher. I'm not saying call up your ex and say, hey, thanks. <laughs> All right? Uh, but, you know, within the realm of normality, within the realm of reasonableness, reach out to the people that have helped you and say hello and just let them know what you're doing. You don't even have to say thanks. People just like to hear hello. And so do that. I'm going to stop. Uh, I'm not sure if this is anywhere near what it is that you expected to hear when you got in here knowing that I was going to speak, but it's what I wanted to talk about, so we went with that. Um, if there's any questions, I'll take them we, maybe for about 10 minutes or so, 8 to 10 minutes, and then we'll, we'll, we'll move on to the next speaker. Yes, ma'am. I was pretty sure I'd managed to answer every question every student had, but apparently not. Um, question about quitting and how you manage perception around quitting, because there's also the whole issue about burning bridges. And so if after three months you go there and realize you hate it, how do you manage that? Because our society is not um, socialized to think about quitting in the way that you have now presented it to us. Yeah. Uh, so, well, there's two things. There's the pressure you're going to get from people that have no stake in you quitting or not quitting, but they just have expectations of you. And then there's the people that, you know, the job you're quitting itself. Uh, when I went to the consulting firm to quit, I didn't just sort of call in and say, I quit. You know, I sat down and I gave them the respect they deserved and I listened to them. I was open. I empathized. I tried to have humility. I may be wrong about this. Let's have a conversation about it. But ultimately, I also had to share with them why it was important for me to do something different. And two kinds of responses came back. Most of the people I talked to during my exit interview were extremely supportive. Extremely supportive. Like, you know, hey, if this is what you think you got to do, then, then that's what you got to do. And good for you, better to know now than to later, we understand. Because I hadn't been a jerk about it, I'd, I'd been respectful about, about the process. There was one person who actually happened to have been the hiring manager who tore into me, started telling me, he's like, you know, what do you even know? You've only been here three months. And then he went down this path about, do you know how much the company invests in new hires? For the first year, we don't even make any money off of you. You know, and we spent all this stuff, and now you're taking off. And, and I, I was feeling bad. So, you know, I, I kind of understand that. And after a while, I stopped feeling bad because he wouldn't stop yelling at me. <laughs> and, and again, I was young, and I would have maybe handled it differently now. But at the time, I said, listen, I think there's a misperception here. You know, I understand that, you know, the company maybe lost a year by you know, investing in me when they could have invested in someone else. But do you really think I did this strategically? Do you think I got anything out of those three months that I'm going to be able to use for the rest of my life? What, C language programming? You think I'm ever going to use that again? I understand the consulting firm lost a year. But I lost a year of my life. And a year of my life is worth a lot more to me than a year of a new hire is worth to this firm. I didn't do this out of some strategic desire to steal from you. So, I, you know, you got to lay it out and you got to explain, here's, here's why I'm doing this. To the extent that you don't get into those relationships in the first place, the better. But if you're there, if, you're, if you have obligations, meet your obligations. If you're going to put them in a hard spot, understand that, respect that, make sure you don't put them in a, in a difficult situation. But then don't waste time justifying to yourselves you should stay there longer than you should. Reality is always a little bit murkier. 
But quit early, quit often, takes you a long way. As for the other people in your lives, some of them will understand why you're doing something different and some won't. But, you know, as I look to the MBA students at the business school here, I mean, how many of you would describe yourself first and foremost as an average Harvard Business School MBA student? Is that who you are? Are you the average Harvard Business School MBA student? If not, then don't fall into the social pressures of what it means to be the average Harvard Business School MBA student. You're you. You are also an MBA student. That's where the create value part comes in. Like all of your peers, you should be doing that. But who are you that makes you different? That should be the guiding force. And yes, get there in a reasonable, respectful way. Anything else? You can throw out anything you want. I'll probably answer it. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, Professor. Uh, I want to ask a question relating to uh, empathy. When you mentioned we tend to have little empathy to people we're closest to and people we don't like, to me, I sort of understand the second part, but it's very straightforward. But do you happen to know why maybe psychologically we tend to have little empathy towards the people we care about the most? Probably two things. You know, when somebody fights with us or yells at us or doesn't seem to understand us, it doesn't hurt so much when it's a stranger. We can write off the stranger. You don't even know me. Yeah, you're crazy. I don't have to see you again. But when somebody close to us seems to be judging us, seems to be attacking us, seems to not understand us when we think they should, I think our defenses go up pretty high. And we become more emotional about it. We get more angry about it. And when you get into that state, the last thing you're thinking about doing is, well, let me see it from your perspective. So I think that's, that's one of those reasons. The second reason, I think, is we have established relationships and established patterns in our relationships. You know, whether it's with your spouse, whether it's with your parents or with your kids, you get into a certain routine. And as a result of that routine, you don't update often enough as that person is changing who they are. If I asked you, are you a different person now than you were five or ten years ago, you'd say yes. If I was to ask your parents that, they may say, no, he's basically the same kid. All right? Same thing with spouses. Is your husband or is your wife a different person now than they were five years ago? Basically the same person. But when you ask that person, are you different in this relationship? They're like, yeah, I've grown a lot, I've evolved. We often don't see the growth coming in other people. We judge them the way they always were. I see this in family businesses all the time. It's where it's worse, where the disputes are the ugliest. The father or mother who can't see the kid any differently than when they were five years old or 10 years old. The sibling who can't see their sibling, even though now they're 45 years old, any different than when they used to steal their toys and break them. Right? We have to be better at updating. When other people are trying, they're trying to evolve, they're trying to change, they're trying to be better, we've got to stop using the same arguments with them that we were in the past. Same, ju same judgments, same language, we have to update. And we should feel less pressure to defend ourselves with the people that are attacking those close. Maybe it's a combination of the two. Yes, sir. Thank you, Deepak. I think you should give this talk to the RCs before they graduate. It's very powerful. Um, <laughs> I think everyone agrees with me. 
I want to know uh, the quit early, quit often thing. It works out when you're 21, 22, and you're kind of like, okay, by age 28, I can quit my way to the ideal position and I can be really happy. But a lot of us, at least myself, kind of moving into officially and moving into adulthood, and <laughs> at least I try. You're going through changes, I know. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, how would you? There's an internal battle where we naturally seek, we, we're naturally kind of seeking to settle. Yeah. So there's an in, internal debate between doing crazy things and quitting and finding kind of your sweet spot. And on the other hand, just finding something that's stable and safe. So how would you reconcile that battle for us internally? Uh, this is a serious problem. But first, just characterization-wise, crazy things and quitting. Uh, I wouldn't say quitting is the crazy thing. I think doing something for the rest of your life that's not right for you is crazy. That's what's crazy. Let's do the normal thing. Up until we get to about 25 or 30, what's normal is not to do the same thing for too long. You're in middle school for three years, high school for four years, college for four years, work for a couple years, grad school for two or three years. You're constantly changing and you have lots of opportunities. But when you get to about 25 or 30, you're about to settle down. I don't know too many people who stop growing at 25 or 30. But we do have this pressure or the expectation that now we're going to be settled for the rest of our life. For some people, that's a real constraint. You know, their kids are going to go hungry if they don't keep doing what they're doing. They didn't have an education. This is the only thing they know how to do. They don't even know how to get out of the village. There's, there's real constraints, so they're going to keep doing that because that's their only choice. But for the rest of us, what we perceive to be constraints aren't really constraints. Yes, it's harder when I have three kids. Yes, it's harder when I have a mortgage. Yes, it's harder. But it's not as hard as I make it out to be. And in my own life, I'll give you my answer. You know, I don't have very fancy or, or uh, costly pastimes. I don't buy very many luxury goods. I don't go out to expensive restaurants even. My favorite restaurant is now what it was in college, which is Taco Bell. Uh, <laughs> And every so often, uh, my wife will ask me, uh, you know, on a birthday or it's Christmas or it's, you know, our anniversary, let's buy you something really nice. Let's buy you something that you'll really enjoy. Something, let's spend some money on something. And what I will often say is, you know, I already am spending my money on the most important luxury item I could think of. The money that I have that looks like it's sitting in a bank is actually purchasing something very, very important for me. It's giving me the ability to quit whenever I want. All that money that looks like I'm not spending, that's what that is. If I decide, I don't think I'm going to decide this next year or even 10 years from now, but I may. If I discover one day that this is no longer for me, that what I should be doing with my life is something different, it'll be more difficult than it was when it was 21. But I foresee that, and I make some arrangements for that. What I would say is, one luxury item, if you can afford it, you should certainly purchase, is the freedom to quit whenever you want. If the next paycheck won't show up for two, three, four, five years because of a change in trajectory, and if you can afford it, again, it may be circumstances don't allow it, but it shouldn't be choices that kept you down. Right? Though I will say this, it's usually not the money that keeps us running down that same path. It's usually the mindset. Money is important. But mindset is the biggest problem. We don't bother questioning. We don't want to know. We accept that, you know, work is work. It's not supposed to be fun. I'll be happy when I'm X. 
I'll do this for eight or ten years, then I'll do this. Those people keep doing that. And then they are 60 or 70 or 80, and they look back and say, this is what I did with my life. Or maybe they don't even ask that, and they're perfectly happy. I don't know. But those that do, you know, this is the choice you have to make. It's, not, it's going to get harder, but you can prepare for it mentally and maybe even financially. All right, I'm going to be mindful of hitting just about 5 o'clock now. Uh, it's been my pleasure uh, being here with all of you. Uh, hopefully it was a nice time for all of you as well. Stay in touch. Uh, if you want to talk about this, I'll stick around after Professor Moss's uh, talk with you as well. So I'll be here for a little while longer. And if you ever want to reach out next week, next month, next year, whether you're one of my students or not, always feel comfortable to reach out to any of us here. We like to hear from you. Good luck with what happens next. Thank you.